seated. And we'll dismiss kids to Kingdom Kids. There's a teacher already back there in the foyer waiting to take you across to our Christian Education Center, the building that's right across the street. And so parents, if you're sending your kids now, uh, ages four through nine for that program, make sure you also remember to pick them up right away from the CE Center after the service. Charles Blondin lived in the 1800s. He was a French gymnast and one of the greatest tightrope walkers in history. In 1859, he decided to walk across the Niagara Gorge. That's a little ways down from Niagara Falls, crossing the Niagara River. He was going to use a rope two inches wide, 1,200 feet long, and some 200 feet in the air. Uh, Pretty crazy feet to attempt, but he he did it. In fact, that summer, he crossed dozens of times. And just to keep it interesting for himself and entertaining for the many crowds that were there, he would do it sometimes blindfolded. He did it sometimes on stilts, uh, pushing a wheelbarrow. Uh, You can look it up. Charles Blondin, Niagara, it's even crazier than that. But uh, one day, he asked the crowd of hundreds of people that were uh, there watching, who thinks that I can cross the Niagara with someone on my back? And the crowd goes crazy, like, yeah. You know what the next question is, right? Who will get on my back and cross the Niagara with me? Silence. Preachers, many preachers over the years have told that story many times because it's a great illustration of true faith. You can say you believe in Jesus, that, that he's powerful, that he does amazing things. Anyone, anybody can say that. I, yeah, I believe you can do what you say, but are you willing to stake your life on what he alone can do for you? Eventually, Blondine convinced his manager, Harry Colcord, to climb on his back. Uh, Before they set out over the chasm, Blondine said, Look up, Harry. You are no longer Colcord. You are Blondine. Be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. They made it across. You can actually see a a photograph, look it up, uh, of of him doing this. Now, this, this kind of faith in Christ, the kind of faith in Christ that will save your life involves complete oneness. For Christ to be your salvation, you must be one with him. Now, no tightrope walkers in the Bible. Uh, Instead, we see this profound oneness, this profound union woven into the fabric of creation in the marriage of the first man and the first woman. And as we've been seeing throughout this short series leading up to Christmas, Adam points to Christ because Jesus fulfills what it means to be human and he brings us into the fullness of our true humanity, all that God created us to be. So here's the theme for the sermon today. Celebrate Jesus who makes us one with him in covenant relationship. And if that doesn't mean much to you? I hope it will by the time we get to the end of this sermon. Celebrate Jesus who makes us one with him in covenant relationship. We're going to start this morning in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. 
I'll read that. You're welcome to, to, to join me there or just listen as I read this uh, foundational text for what it means for our humanity. Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to, all, to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and bought, brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here's part one of our text. It's on the screen. It's on the back of your worship folder if you want to follow along in this outline. Part one is first wedding. In the beginning, Adam and Eve become one as a pattern for a purpose. So Genesis 1, after uh, each day of creation, God saw that he had made all that he had made and said it was good, good, good. It was good. Here in chapter 2, we see out of all the good that God made, verse 18, not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. So, God says, I will make a helper fit for him. Helper? Eh. I mean, as if the woman is being referred to like she's some small child helping, helping mommy decorate Christmas cookies, but not very well. But, you know, she's mommy's little helper. You know. No, no. The, the, is the woman created to be man's little helper? No, no. That's not the point any more than God looking down at man saying, whew, this guy needs help. Maybe true, but it's not, that's not the, the implication of the text here. Remember the themes that we have been seeing it, that define humanity in Genesis 1 and 2. And notice how they require man and woman together in partnership. Think about it. God made humankind both male and female in his image. We saw that in Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28. God made humankind, both male and female, in his image. He blessed them, said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And I think you understand that you need both for that. Uh, Fill the earth and subdue it. They they were to have dominion together. Or or think about our theme last week of, of being embodied living creatures. Filling the earth with the visible sign of God requires physical presence. And these two, different in bodies, yet clearly made for one another. Once again, don't have to draw a picture for you. Two different bodies, yet clearly made for one another in order to fulfill these God-given purposes as they come together in a profound union that is life-giving, life-creating, life-multiplying. That's what God is getting at when he says, alone is not good. To fulfill their commission, Adam needs the perfect counterpart, working together to fulfill God's purpose, the purpose that God gave them 
in God's world. Now, because this is a part of God's purpose for humankind in creation, the first wedding of Adam and Eve becomes a pattern. It's a pattern for all couples who come after them. Look again at verse 24. The word, therefore, is drawing a conclusion that extends to every union of any man and woman. I turned away from there. I shouldn't. Let me go back there. I won't attempt to quote it for you. So the Lord God caused a deep... I turned back too far. Here's verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, quick sidebar. This is not saying that, uh, that you have to be married to be fully human. Each individual bears God's image, carries out God's given dominion, uh, the, the God-given dominion that we have. You can serve God single, married, unmarried, divorced, widowed. What it's saying is sex, marriage, family should be lived out in light of your created purpose. So yes, it is God's blessing to you, but it is so that you can glorify Him. Leaving father and mother is not so much a rejection of the extended family, it's about leaving behind childhood and dependency for adulthood, for maturity. And to hold fast, that's a very specific term in Scripture for covenant commitment. You are now bound together, not only in physical union, but partners in building a home, in raising children, in handling your finances, and on and on. And it's that commitment, in the words of the traditional Christian wedding vows, it's for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. Not as, well, as long as you make me happy, or as long as this, this relationship is fulfilling for me. No, hold fast. Hold tightly to one another. Stick together. I don't have to tell you that we don't live in Eden anymore. The world has fallen and we are broken. Some, Some want to be married, but you're afraid that you never will be. Some were committed to their marriage, but have been abandoned. Some were married for life, but death has taken that partner away. And that's even before we get to all the ways that our culture encourages us, even celebrates the pursuit of physical sexual union against God's pattern and without regard to His purpose, to the purpose that He gave us. Now, of of course, sex involves uh, attraction and desire and pleasure, but you must not give in to a hookup culture. Use and dispose. You, you, You need a love that lasts Uh, that persists through everything life throws at you. Of course, marriage is more than just a piece of paper, thinking about the the marriage license, but the public covenant commitment that's reflected in that piece of paper should be more important to you than thinking about, you know, the flowers that will be at the ceremony or the cake that's going to be at the reception and whether it's all, you know, going to be really Instagram worthy. Uh, Of course, marriage is more than having babies, but when we see, as our culture often does, see children as a merely a lifestyle option, like, yes, I want kids so that I can validate myself through them, and so I make myself look better when my kids are successful, or on the other extreme, no, I don't want to have kids, it's going to cramp my style, they cost too much, And, and so either way, we're making those things about ourselves, we make it about ourselves and rather than, uh, and, and our freedom rather than humankind and its future, God and His purposes. 
Of course, of course, the family is more than nuclear, more than just father, mother, child. But when we redefine marriage to be any two people, and hey, why not more? Uh, when we, we, we redefine family to be any assemblage of multiple persons, we're stretching the picture, the pattern that God gave us beyond all recognition, beyond all practical function. All, all, our culture is not expanding marriage. Congress, the president's signature is not expanding marriage. It's blowing it up. And far too many are left to live in the rubble. Now, my message today is not about getting back to a biblical definition of marriage, or even that Jesus can give you a better marriage, though I think he can. Christ came to bring us into covenant relationship with God. That's where ultimately we're going here in this sermon. Christ came to bring us into covenant relationship with God, and before we get there, we need to look at another chapter in the story. This is part two. Our infidelity. Israel's adultery reflects the broken relationship between God and man. Now, the Bible starts and ends as a story about God's relationship with humankind, his creation. But most of the middle of this long book is about his relationship with one particular people, the descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel. His covenant with them included making vows, promises, uh, included love, and the expectation of faithfulness by both parties, which is to say it was an exclusive relationship. Listen to this from the Ten Commandments. I'm going to read now from Exodus chapter 20. I want you to listen to these probably familiar words, um, not as simply rules about that you have to obey, rules to follow as it pertains to uh, religion or worship. Listen to this as... Uh, part of setting the boundaries for a relationship. When God says in verse 3 of chapter Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He says he's a, a jealous God. Hey, you might think that sounds, oh, sounds kind of possessive, uh, kind of needy. Why can't he just let his people be in a, you know, open-ended relationship? This has been sold to us today as a more, you know, grown-up way to think uh, about love and relationships, just, you know, open-ended and uh, come and go. Uh, Early on in this recent scandal involving the two uh, hosts of Good Morning America 3, uh, a a lot of the headlines seem to kind of wink at this uh, affair, like, whew, juicy story. But it's never merely a little naughty to cheat on your spouse, I mean, just just ask the ones who are cheated on. God, in the same way, is jealous. He will not put up with his bride going after other gods. He cannot bear it. He will not tolerate it. That doesn't mean he's possessive in a controlling way. It simply means God wants his people to be just as committed to him as he is to them. God wants his people to be committed to him just as much as he is is committed to them. 
Did you hear him say in Exodus 20, the passage I just read, he's a God who shows steadfast love. In Exodus 34, 6, a bit later in the book, he says he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the essence of covenant relationship. Love that lasts, love love that sticks and stays through all the stuff that life throws at you. Think about how many love songs and romantic movies talk about love that lasts forever. It's what we all want, but seem to have so much trouble in actually committing to and carrying it out. It's a sad story that plays out over and over in the Old Testament. Over and over again, God proves himself to be faithful to his people. Over and over again, his people prove to be unfaithful to him. Actually, the Bible puts it much more graphically. It often uses that word that I use in the outline of adultery. They've, they've cheated on their God. Or even more graphically, in Deuteronomy 31.16, this people, God says, will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Jeremiah 31.32 refers to this as my covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. It genuinely saddens me that even talking about this topic this morning could bring back some deep pain, could open up some old wounds for some in this room who have been betrayed in their marriage. And I'm sorry for that. I genuinely am. And without minimizing that pain and that hurt, Here's the thing, each and every one of us has to face in the, the ways that we have been unfaithful like that to the God who was committed to us. But we ran out, we ran around on Him. See, that idolatry, that infidelity, that adultery was not just a problem for Israel. Romans 1 says it is the fundamental problem of sinful humankind, all of us. Romans 1, 24 and 25, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. You keep reading it, and it's, it's startling that the idolatry that people go up, they're, they're forsaking the worship of God, their, their exclusive relationship with the one true God, and that Not only does that turn into false worship, it turns into sexual immorality in this world. That's that's how it was in pagan Rome, uh, the Romans to which Paul was writing. And more and more, it's true in our own culture today. Idolatry and immorality just go hand in hand. And we can see, we have to acknowledge these same impulses so often in our own sinful hearts. I I, I can say I'm, I'm committed to God, but, you know, so many other gods catch my eye. Like, oh, money goes by, and I'm like, oh, hey. You know, it promises power and status. Or maybe we worship our own physical fitness. I want people to, to look at me. I want people to desire me, or I bow. I bow before comfort. I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, be, you know, ostentatious, but, you know, I just like a life where uh, I, I just, I'm just not bothered by all the problems of life. I just want to take it easy. Pride, laziness, greed, 
gluttony, lust? What, where, where is the help for those who have been unfaithful like me, like you? Where's the hope for those who deserve to be divorced from God? What you need to know is that the steadfast love and faithfulness of God means he is not content to let his unfaithful people go. That's good news. The steadfast love and faithfulness of God means he is not content to let his unfaithful people go. Now, I'll just read just some selections from uh, the prophet Hosea. Hosea chapter 2, just a few verses selected here. He says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. He's referring to his people, his unfaithful people as his bride. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. That's the name of the Canaanite gods. Uh, For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will betroth you to to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. That promise comes true in Jesus. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we, we got to go to this next point. Not just our infidelity, the important thing to know is his sacrifice. This is part three. Christ redeems a people out of all humankind to become one with him. Christ redeems a people out of all humankind to become one with him. Perhaps you remember that when Jesus came, he was called and and called himself the bridegroom. That was no meaningless nickname. Here's what John the Baptist said in John 3, verses 28 to 30. John speaking, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, speaking of himself, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. We remember that statement. It's a powerful one. John saying, Jesus, he must increase. I must decrease. He he gets to come into the foreground. I'm going to slip into the background. But I love that line in the middle too. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, Jesus has to be the bridegroom because the bride is intended for him. Jesus is their Messiah because they are his people. And John, as a preacher of repentance, is just the friend who brings them together. He's getting the people ready for their Messiah to come. Paul, the apostle, later on, sees himself in much the same way, even though he was doing ministry on the other side of the the death and resurrection of Jesus. He was working, doing ministry among the Gentiles and not just his fellow Jews. He wrote to the believers in the Greek city of Corinth. This is the beginning of 2 Corinthians 11. He says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul doesn't want these believers who have committed their lives to Jesus to wander away from him. Sounds like a familiar story, doesn't it? 
Now, there, there are other, so many other passages we could look at that, that carry out this theme, Christ as the bridegroom, the husband, but there's one essential text uh, for the way that Christ corresponds to Adam as the first husband, Ad, uh, Christ being the, in some sense, the, the last Adam, the last husband. It is Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Ephesians chapter 5. Now, this uh, Ephesians 5, this is an an infamous passage in many ways. What I want you to listen for is how it all hinges on Christ and the church being one, being united, Not, not sexually, but in a kind of one flesh union. So, listen, 522, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, near the end, you heard Paul quote Genesis 2.24, where we started this morning. That verse that serves as a pattern for all human marriage. Yet he says that marriage is really, what it's really about, is about this union between, this greater covenant relationship between Christ and the church, which is really a fulfillment, the full flowering of the relationship begun in the Old Testament between God and his people Israel. Jesus came as Israel's Messiah, but he would be the Savior of the world. So now anyone can be brought into this covenant relationship with God through faith in Christ and what he has done to make us his own. How did Christ make the church his bride? He gave himself up for her, referring to his death on the cross. It was Christ's love expressed in sacrifice, sacrificial love, a sacrifice that paid for our sins, all our unfaithfulness, and made it possible for us, we who had defiled ourselves in our sin, our idolatry and immorality, to make us a pure and spotless bride for him, a bride that he will then present to himself in splendor. Now, I love what the German reformer Uh, Martin Luther said about this. I may have read this in another sermon sometime before. It's so good, you need to hear it again. Uh, He said, Christ 
and the soul become one flesh. And if they are one flesh, and if between them there is a true marriage, it follows that everything they have, they hold in common, the good as well as the evil. Accordingly, the believing soul can boast of and glory in whatever Christ has as though it were its own. And whatever the soul has, Christ claims as his own. Luther continues, Let us compare these and we shall see the inestimable benefits. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them. And sins, death, and damnation will be Christ's, while grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. By the wedding ring of faith, he shares the sins, death, and pains of hell, which are the bride's. Her sins cannot now destroy her, and she has that righteousness of Christ, her husband, and can say, if I have sinned, yet my Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned, and all his is mine, and all mine is his. That's, Luther calls this a glorious exchange, the royal marriage. Or, or we could put it in terms of the story that I told you earlier. Look up, Harry. You are no longer a call cord. You are Blondine. Look up, believer. You are Christ. You are in Him. Christ makes Himself, Christ Himself makes His people, His church, holy and glorious for Himself to be one with us. That's what we were made for a covenant relationship with God, with steadfast love and faithfulness. And, and because you are so united with him in covenant union, of course he nourishes and cherishes you like a beloved bride. Now, there's so many applications here for husbands and wives. That's clear, but it's not the focus of this message. If you are a husband or wife or hope to be someday, and you want to talk some more about that, the, the practical application of this, I'd be glad to talk with you about those things. But this, this right now is for everyone here today. Married, unmarried, doesn't matter. If you know Jesus, then you have the most important relationship. See, that doesn't matter if you're single want to be married, but no prospects. It doesn't matter if somebody left you and you feel like nobody wants me anymore. It doesn't matter if you're single, married, never married, divorced, remarried, or widowed. You were made for a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and it's the sacrifice of Christ for your sins so that will make you a worthy match for him. And that's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. Let's take a moment, just a short moment, to look at the very end. This is part four, the last wedding. Look at the first wedding in Genesis. We're going to look at the last wedding. In the end, the only marriage will be Christ and his bride together forever. In the end, the only marriage will be Christ and his bride together forever. Now, in Matthew 19, Jesus reaffirmed the teaching of Genesis 24 for marriage. Uh, now, I don't know if you've heard this. I've heard this uh, from multiple sources. I've heard, some of you have told me you've heard people say this. Uh, Jesus, people say, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality or transgenderism. He didn't say anything about that. So presumably, you know, it's all, it's all good. It's all, you know, whatever you want. Um, here, here's Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now, Jesus could say the very same thing to anybody today who wants his opinion on the issues. Have you not read Genesis? God made them male and female, not a spectrum of gender fluidity. Uh, He says from Genesis, a man shall hold fast to his wife, a man and a woman, and the two, not three or more, shall become one flesh. I think Jesus is pretty clear on the issue. And then he added the words that have been included in many uh, Christian wedding ceremony, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The only thing that should end a, a, a marriage is death itself. Till death do us part. A few chapters later, though, Jesus explains that marriage is not eternal, at least not our human marriages. In Matthew 22, uh, marriage is is not eternal. It's not going to extend into uh, the next life. And that might be disappointing for some of us who, if you've enjoyed a good marriage, you're like, well, well, that that sounds maybe not what I would be hoping for. But here's here's a positive side for the rest of us who maybe feel like, oh, yeah, Uh, maybe maybe the marriage in this life, as imperfect, as disappointing, or painful, difficult, shattered, it was never meant to be ultimate. There's one, only one ultimate marriage. There's only one, if there's a first husband, there's only one last husband, the ultimate Adam, the ultimate husband, the ultimate relationship that we are all made for. Yes, yes, here and now we should work hard to glorify God in your marriage. If you are a husband, if you are a wife, you should work hard together to glorify God in your marriage, in your families, loving and laying down your life in sacrifice and submission. But right now, we're all looking forward to the last wedding, the final wedding, the only marriage that lasts forever. Have you not read Revelation? Have you not read read Genesis? Have you not read Revelation? Revelation 19 Verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When Christ comes, there will be a celebration like no other. A celebration like no other. Why? Because we will be brought together Christ and his bride, and he will sing like the first Adam, at last, at last, the one who was made for me. And then we will be perfectly holy, presented to him 
in splendor. Revelation 21 begins like this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Folks, someday God, it might be a funny image, but I think it's worth it. Someday God is going to carry us over the threshold over the threshold of eternity. And the words that you and I have heard and read and recited over and over will be true like never before. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. A marriage made in heaven lived, on earth, lived out on earth for eternity. So if I can make one last appeal for you, if, if that's not your hope today, I hope you're, if it is, I hope you're celebrating Jesus today the one who makes us one to live with him in covenant relationship. If it's not your hope today, don't leave Jesus standing at the altar. Come to him. Be made one with him. Let him take you, make you pure, make you his beautiful bride. We together, his people. Let's pray.